Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Distinguished historian Dame Claudia Orange has dedicated a lifetime to the study of Aotearoa's founding documents, ensuring that current and future generations can have a wider understanding of our bicultural history. Her landmark book, The Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti o Waitangi, an illustrated history, has just been comprehensively updated to bring the treaty narrative up to the present day. She joined Hiranika in conversation to talk about her early days, her immersion in the study and honouring of the treaty, and how groundbreaking settlements are setting the course for our future. This session was supported by Platinum patrons Susan and Gavin Walker. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure and honour to welcome you all to the multitude here this afternoon to come to dip from the well of wisdom uh, from one of our leading public historians, from one of the people who's helped transform our nation over the past few decades, uh, Dame Claudia Orange. All my te paki paki. My name is Hirini Carr and it's a pleasure and an honour uh, to be here in conversation uh, this afternoon with uh, Claudia. Um, I'm an Anglican, so I feel quite uncomfortable just calling her Claudia. Um, we love our titles, so if I look a bit angsty, that's why. Uh, I've got a few uh, household things, sorry, I need to mention first. Uh, first, please turn your cell phones off. You don't want to be that guy uh, whose phone goes off. Uh, please, I'm, I'm sure you've all scanned in or signed in. Uh, please wear masks if you feel comfortable doing so. Uh, share on social media, and particularly like to thank uh, our patrons, Susan and Gavin Walker, for their support of this event this afternoon. Uh, for our structure um, this afternoon, for our session, uh, we're going to be having a kōrero. Um, uh, we're going to uh, talk about um, Claudia's origins, the beginning of her work as a history. Uh, then, because this is a writer's festival, we're going to talk about writing history. Uh, how, how one his, historianises. Uh, and then to finish, we're going to talk a little bit about the present and the future of the treaty. Where are we headed as a nation? Uh, what, how our history can inform, uh, can shape that corridor. Uh, we won't be taking any questions this afternoon because uh, we're here to listen to uh, Dame Claudia. Uh, but you're welcome to come uh, to the signing table afterwards um, and, again, draw from the well. Um, so with that, uh, tēnā koutou katoa. Tēnā koe, uh, Hirini. Kia ora tātou katoa. Um, it's good to be here. Thank you for coming. And I hope that we can um, attend to some of the questions that keep puzzling people from time to time, and we have one to kick off with, which Hirini is going to open up with. Kia ora, kia ora. So, um, I'm sure there are some treaty educators in the audience. 
Now, our, our terms that we're going to use this afternoon, uh, the treaty entity, but we're talking about this wider discourse as well, the treaty and its place in our history. Which terms will we use this afternoon? How are we going to think about them? I think we need to understand we're talking about the Maori text of the treaty, Titiriti. And in fact, increasingly, it is what's being worked with in Wellington and elsewhere too. Um, it also is reflected in the voices coming from Maori uh, in terms of Waitangi Tribunal claims and in the settlement area too. So we're talking about Titiriti, basically. And if people understand it in that way, I think it might be more easy. Mm, and, and fascinating. Hopefully we'll explore a little bit how we got to that point. We'll come back to yeah, it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my Pākehā mother, the first time she went to a marae was for her father-in-law's tangihanga, and she didn't know where she was, what she was doing. It's possibly a truth of New Zealand history, particularly in the 20th century, that most Pākehā didn't have much engagement at all with te ao Māori, with the Māori world. Uh, we're often unaware of it. How did you as a young Pākehā woman begin your involvement with the Māori world? Well, um, in the 1950s and 60s, I grew up in Ponsonby. Um, and uh, my, you know, when, when you're a youngster and a teenager, you don't take too much notice of your father's work. But uh, Dad was fluent in Māori. He was a very blonde Pākehā, uh, educated at uh, Fielding Agricultural High School. And somehow he'd started to learn Māori there. So that when he left school, he started at the Gisborne Office of Māori Affairs. And so my uh, experience as a young person was seeing him working um, on Māori Affairs business, um, sometimes on the ta kitchen table late at night, um, screeds of things coming off uh, uh, the work that he was doing on land consolidation, which Aparana Nata had, uh, had started in the early 1930s. Um, and of course, he brought his contacts to dinner too. And so it wasn't unusual to have Fina Cooper's, the man who was to become Fina Cooper's husband, Bill Cooper, come to dinner um, and sit opposite me at the table. And of course, the men would just talk in te reo. It was also not unusual um, for me to pick up the phone and find Fina Cooper on the other end. And that's a very distinctive voice, as some of you will know from the recordings of her voice. Um, and also, when the Auckland office of Māori Affairs Department, which Dad worked for, was shifted to Whangarei, um, he used to get picked up in the morning by Brownie Puriri, um, and I used to swing on the gate, talking with Brownie. So my experience was really only initially through my father, and uh, it was an important one, though, and it also made me realise that you could um, speak Māori, you could use te reo. Which would have been, again, a, quite a rare and unusual phenomenon for a young Pākehā to understand this. That's quite correct, yes. We sit here on the lands of Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke. Uh, they hold the mana whenua for these lands. Um, they've had, a, in some ways, a terrible, tragic history. Apihai Tekawo gifted these lands. Uh, and yet it soon became a history of the taking of those lands. Uh, can you tell us about 1952 and how that impacted you, uh, the events you experienced at that time? Well, uh, the Auckland City Council were expecting 
a royal visit, which happened, of course, the next year. Um, and they had decided that the Okahu Bay flat, uh, where you had the Ngāti Whātua settlement, uh, was something of an eyesore, particularly if a royal party was going to drive along Tamaki Drive. And Dad got wind of the fact, and in fact it was probably fairly public, um, that the, the flats at, uh, at Okahu Bay were going to get cleaned out. Some of the people living there had already been um, repositioned in the road, road above um, in state houses. Dad actually knew some of the people, of course, because he was working with them um, in the Māori Affairs Department in Emily Place. Um, and one night, uh, Dad got quite upset because he had heard uh, that the, there was going to be a move to evict the people um, on the Okahu Bay Flats. Um, and Mum, too, got upset. And uh, Dad said, well, I'm going to go and see what's happening. It's got to be stopped. Um, and my mother said, for goodness sake, you can't go. You, there's nothing you can do at this stage. And she said, Claudia's got to go with you. So the two of us drove down. Um, I was pretty young, I suppose, a 14-year-old. Um, and uh, it, was, it was really a very bad scene. Uh, there was a lot of uh, crying, wailing, um, tangi. Um, and then I think a fire broke out and there were flames. So it was pretty scary. Dad was extremely upset, put his head on the steering wheel and cried. He'd stopped and he put his head down and cried. And I said, Dad, you can't, you can't. He said, I've got to help. I said, I don't think you can really do anything at this stage. It was the only time I ever saw my father cry, mm. but it was an indelible experience. Mm. Such a powerful story. And, you know, perhaps, um helps explain some of your search for justice over your career and further understanding these. Um, in terms of this idea, though, of um, justice and a search for justice, which to me seems to be, in, be a large driver in your work, and I have to ask this question, how's faith informed your notions of justice? It's a good question. Um, I suppose I was extremely lucky um, to have an education at St. Mary's and College Hill, starting there when I was just a little tiny tot and going right through all, all the way. And, of course, getting involved in the uh, secondary years in the Catholic youth movement. Um, and it was a very, uh, very wise program of seeing some of the issues around you in, in your life that you might be able to help with, judging what could be do could be done, and then doing something about it. It's a very much an inquiry method, I suppose you could say, see, judge, and act. Um, but it was also, of course, um, capped by the fact that you were working as a Christian, as a Catholic, um, that was committed, and you're committed to be something a little bit more than your brother's or sister's keeper, that you could help people in different ways. And I went on, um, then after leaving school, worked with a group, Maori, the Maori Girls Hostel, which used to be in Shelley Beach Road, um, which made me realise some of the issues that Maori were handling. Um, and then finally, of course, um, moving on to uh, the Christian family movement, which in our, in our years after I married at 20 to my teacher husband. 
And that was very uh, worthwhile too. Um, I also was extremely uh, lucky to have um, a nun uh, in my fifth form year who had started to do university and for goodness sake, she was doing New Zealand history. And so I suspect she was attending a lecture and coming straight back to the classroom and pouring it out. But I remember that quite distinctly. And I actually found sixth form British history pretty boring. You know, with a sort of 1200 to I don't know what, and a very boring Carter and Mears, which some of you older people might just remember. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> So your father had these connections to Farno in the north, um, the Coopers, the Puriris. You are informed by this faith formation in terms of your responsibilities to your neighbour. Um, why history? You know, why did, why did history become this vehicle for your, what we might call a quest for justice? Why did you take up art or politics or law? I'm sure you'd have been great at any of those. Uh, particularly the latter, what was it about history that spoke to you about what you were looking for? Well, it's not totally logical that I ended up doing history, um, but um, we had three children and my husband got a job in Bangkok and uh, we all went up there. Um, he was setting up an English language institute for the Thai government. I think he was 28 and I was 25. Um, with three kids in Bangkok, it was quite a challenge. And I realised that there were areas in Asia and issues going on um, that were so informative that I wanted to know more. Uh, certainly in Southeast Asia, you have a range of metropolitan powers um, who have imposed their dominance in different areas. If you think back, those of you who know something about Southeast Asian history, so um, I was very keen to, to study Southeast Asian history um, if I had a chance, because I had never been to university. Um, and so uh, it seemed like a pretty good idea as the children grew and were all at school to start at Auckland University, which I did in 1969. Um, and I was extremely lucky. Um, it was a very good department. Uh, Keith Sinclair, Judith Binney, um, Nick Tarling, uh, a range of excellent people there. Um, and so I had a, a range of papers I could take in my bachelor's years. And they were the big colonial pa papers. Um, well, actually starting with China, uh, Japan, the Southeast Asian countries, and then East Central and South Africa, the Philippines, Indonesia, Australia, the Pacific, and finally, New Zealand. And so the big question is, um, you know, was New Zealand different? And it seemed to me that uh, studying history was one way of, of getting to grips with that. Because essentially, if you're talking about history, it's really who, what, and why were things done. Um, you need evidence to support that, of course, and the ability to argue and talk and to, to write. Um, but I was very lucky that at that stage too, uh, there were people working in history that I did respect. Alan Ward, who, who is now deceased, but Alan worked on the Naitahu claim, um, and he had been a friend um, for some long years. Um, and also, of course, it was um, very helpful. I hadn't written an essay since sixth form, 
And so uh, to go start at university at the age of 30 um, was quite a challenge, and I was extremely lucky to have a teacher husband who would help me. I'm sure there's no, you know, your teachers won't care anymore. <clears throat> um, <laughs> and of course, historians are just superior humans, right? Um, let's talk some more about you as a historian, the kind of historian's craft. Um, so you were at um, the University of Auckland, the best university in the country. Uh, how did you take up the treaty? How did you take it up as a focus for your studies? And how was that received at the time by the others? Like you were saying, there's this focus on all sorts of other parts of the world, different times. How was it responded to, this interest of yours? Well, maybe let's start first that a bachelor's degree, um, I'd been doing, started to do teacher training too, the old Division B two-year teacher training. And I, they were prepared to fund my doing a master's. And Keith Sinclair, um, who was that do doyen historian, um, suggested to me, why don't you do a, a thesis on your father's year in, years in Māori affairs? Uh, in particular, the, the period of the first Labour government, 1935 to 1949. And this is what I did. Um, and it was quite an eye-opener. I finally called it a kind of equality, that Labour had promised a great deal. Um, I found in my research here in Wellington um, that Walter Nash, who once, of course, became our prime, one of our prime ministers, um, had promised something in 1925, when Labour really didn't think it was, had much chance of ever becoming a government, um, it, they had promised to um, investigate Maori claims based on the treaty, that they'd set up a commission of inquiry. In fact, when they got, be, became the government in 1935, this was quietly forgotten, I think, and they ended up putting a copy of the treaty in every Marae school in the country. It wasn't quite the same thing. Um, and then I think the most important thing for me was that we had a lady um, who was an honorary research fellow there called Ruth Ross, who is now deceased, and she had done a great deal of research on the treaty copies, and really it was Ruth that pointed out very firmly at a seminar in Wellington in 1972 that the two treaties needed to be understood, um, and that Māori had largely, almost completely, only signed the Te Rao Tiriti. Um, and she unfortunately became ill with cancer and uh, quite formally once in the kitchen of the history department said, come on outside, I want to talk to you. I've done all this work on the treaty, but I am not sure about my health. Would you keep going and work at the treaty? I hear you're going to do a PhD. What about doing it? Um, and so I decided it was a pretty good idea. And so um, I, the supervisors I had, I was very lucky, Keith Sinclair, Keith Sorensen, couldn't have had two better supervisors. One of them said to me, I think it was Keith Sorensen, are you sure you really want to do this? He said, we've just had a, a wonderful PhD come out of Oxford by Peter Adams. Um, and he said, maybe he said everything that could be said about the treaty. I said, well, um, maybe, Keith, but I think 
what I'd like to do is the treaty on the ground in New Zealand. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, by this stage, I had had good contact with Maori Affairs, uh, the Maori section of the university, which was right across the road in Wynyard Street from the history department. You have people there that were very active um, at the time, Ranginui Walker, Pat Hohepa, um, Hugh Kafaru was head of the department. You know, you, you had the, so much going on and, and so much talk. And I'd also got to know uh, an elderly ma man who had started to do a degree quite late called Peter Wairua. And he and I used to sit and talk a great deal. And Peter was wonderful. He was one of those people uh, who had papers under his bed, I think. Um, and he in introduced me to the fact uh, of Maori becoming very active on the treaty at Waitangi itself, at Tati Marae, um, in the 18, in the 1870s. So, you know, that, that was a real plus for me. Um, and so the treaty, of course, is a problem because where do you start and where do you stop? And I must say, uh, almost everything one touched, you, you found there was more, to, more questions to ask. Mm. Um, and so, in a sense, the treaty has gone on rolling out. Um, and it's particularly interesting, if, from my point of view, that I was hearing Maori voices um, about complaining about different things and saying, look, more could be done, but nothing was happening. Kia ora, there's, there's something quite profound about, you know, some Pake guy at Oxford, you know, surely would have solved it. Uh, and yet yourself and Ruth Ross, these two Pake women, actually listening, talking to Māori and coming up. And also the idea that the two versions was a very important concept that early on. You know, and yet we're still kind of having to unpack it a little bit in yeah, 2021. Yeah, that's true. So you did the PhD... And then we get to 1987 with your work, the Treaty of Waitangi. Alongside works like James Balich's The New Zealand Wars, Michael King's work, you could argue it was, it was a large part of transforming Pākehā New Zealand uh, at the time. Our understanding, Pākehā understanding of past and present, as you've said, Māori, we already knew some things. Uh, but what was the impact like in 1987 of your book? What was the response like at the time? Well, I think you have to see it in terms of the fact that the third Labour government uh, that had come in in 1984 um, really was committed to do something about the treaty, but also they were into economic transformation too, so that you had this conflict um, uh, uh, through that period, their two terms in, go in government. Um, and when the book came out, it, it was for many people who were puzzled about what was going on. Why had this, this treaty suddenly come out of the bushes? You know, suddenly created so much noise. Um, with people didn't realise that it was really the end of a very long um, period of Maori voices being not being heard. Well, the book topped the bestseller list for six weeks, um, won the Goodman Field Awardee Award for the year. People, I think you could say, were just simply curious and excited about it. Um, it, was, it was a surprise to the publisher, too, so that it had to go through many reprints very quickly. Um, 
I, I was um, saying to you, Claudia, before, one of our whānau taonga at home is a 1987 copy of the book which you signed for my late father, Hune Ka, and we keep it. And I wanted to bring it in today to show people. My wife said I'd leave it on the train, which is quite right, so she wouldn't let me. But, <laughs> but, but you know, I think as a whānau, you know, we might not all have read it, yeah, but well, its existence yes. as a taonga, you know, that our story was being recognised was yeah. part of that, the preciousness, really, of your right. work at the time. Right. That might be true, uh, you know, but quite a lot of people would say to me, looking rather virtuous, I've got your book. It's right by my bed. <laughs> yeah, I said, putting you to sleep, I reckon. <laughs> Which probably it was, too. Although I've always been very strong about writing history that can be reasonably easily read. Well, excellent segue. Um, we are at the Writers' Festival, um, so let's talk about writing a little bit. How do you understand the kind of the craft and the role of the historian? You know, what, um, how do you approach your work as a historian? Got any tips for any aspiring historians out there? Well, let's just start. Is it craft? Um, I guess you could say it is a craft, the role of the historian, in my view, is really, of course, to communicate the research that you're doing and also to, to carry out that research um, by tapping into as many different sources of information as you can. And that would include oral history, too. I've always been pre, pre, uh, pleased uh, that I was part of setting up NOHANS, the National Oral History Association, um, because Petawairua was a case in point. Here I was talking with someone who could bring me down to earth in some of the things I was saying and also convey his uh, personal experience of different kinds. Um, the other thing uh, I think that is important, when I started uh, doing uh, history more seriously at university, I used to go in in the holidays when all the books were back on the shelf in the library and just have a look along and a quick read through some of them, dipping into them. And there was no doubt about it. it was, much of history had been written far too seriously, poorly edited, um, hard to read. Um, so my view always was that you needed to convey the, uh, the facts as clearly as possible, but also on a, in a contentious issue like the treaty, then you really need to have a, a careful, neutral voice um, because you don't want to send people's blood pressure up. Somebody said to me, Are you, do you get angry? How do you, don't you ever get angry in what you're reading? And I said, well, you do, but where, where is it going to go? Um, you know, you have to present as clearly as you can so that the reader will make up their own mind. Um, I must say, and I, I forgot to mention, my, although the book came out in 1987, I'd actually done the PhD on an old typewriter. Um, what a job! Um, you know, the people in the history department, two of them, uh, the Andayas, uh, had just got into um, the IT and, and computers, but computers, uh, unfortunately, didn't really uh, come to my desk until about two or three years later. Um, the other area that I think 
Hirini is getting at um, is how does, the, how does an historian work? Well, each one is going to work differently. There'll be different times of day. Um, but I think the most important thing is actually setting goals. Um, you need to be fit. And sometimes you uh, tell yourself, as I did yesterday, that I really didn't need to go for a walk in the botanic gardens. I needed to think about today. Um, but you do need to watch yourself because sitting at a, at a computer can be pretty exhausting. Not good on the back. So exercise, family support's important. My husband Rod has been hugely supportive. He sees it as maybe something that the work um, he can support, which could make a difference to our entire present and future. Um, I think it's important to talk with people too. I have enjoyed endless discussion with people like Raymond Dalziel, with whom I sometimes have stayed in Auckland, um, with um, Vincent O'Malley, who did the marvellous book on the New Zealand wars. Um, so there are, there are many areas um, that I suppose people uh, might find some joy in doing, but history is really um, a discovery um, topic in a way. Um, I'd been a very keen detective uh, reader and so, I mean, you really want to find out who done it and why. Um, and, you know, I have always thought that that's um, a worthwhile way of looking at history. Um, but you need to then justify yourself, just as detectives, uh, novelists, of course, will create it. A historian really has to travel in a different way. George Gray definitely did it. Um, and also... To to warn people, the risk of paper cuts in the archives is very real. You've got to, um, <laughs> it's also nose problems too, <laughs> terrible nose problems with all the dust. Yeah, track really. Yes. Got to be brave. Um, <laughs> you, you were working at the university for some time, um, but rather than battle evil vice-chancellors and um, write... Um, obscure um, general articles to impress your colleagues, you decided to uh, work in public history. Your work with the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, with Te Ara, with the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, with Te Papa, um, the public-facing engagement, engaging history that you pursued. Why did you choose this public history kind of route and what were some of the challenges and the benefits there? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Um, first, there were not really very many jobs in academia going when I finished the PhD. Keith Sinclair used to sometimes come to, the, to me and say, look, don't think doing a PhD you're going to get an automatic job in academia. There isn't a job, there aren't jobs there. Um, also, I had thought too that the public historians that I knew uh, were really operating outside the walls of the traditional classroom or the university, um, and that many of them, of course, had applied their history skills and knowledge to a huge range of things, and that was increasingly the case um, with the tribunal working. You, some of you will know that the Treaty of Waitangi Act of 1975 um, claims could only be heard to... Uh, to those who had beyond issues that had arisen after 1975. 
In lots of ways, those of us in history felt that it was a bit of a dead duck um, sort of piece of legislation. 1985, it was opened up further so that claims could go back to 1840, and it was really unrolling the whole history of the country once again. Um, so I'm not quite sure how I got to that, but basically there weren't the jobs. And then uh, Professor Bill Oliver from Massey approached uh, me and asked if I would be interested in working for the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. It was a big project just starting then, and um, it was exciting because, you know, how do you create a Dictionary of New Zealand Biography? You've got to be dead to get in. <laughs> So don't get excited. <laughs> um, but seriously, we, we had to set up a computer system um, and government wasn't always very helpful because they themselves hadn't really had to cope with things. And I'm talking now of the mid and late 1980s. Charlotte MacDonald, who's now at Victoria University, uh, applied as much as she could to trying to search that one out. But we ended up with about 15,000 um, uh, biographical uh, records on, on people. Um, and then we had to select out period by period. And some of the exciting things about it, of course, uh, were a decision to um, get, do the Maori biographies too. And again, uh, we desperately needed more Maori writers. And the good thing, of course, is now there are so many more uh, Maori academics. Um, and so that was, um, I think, one of the rewarding things in the last few years. Um, did that answer the question? Sure, good. Good point. Good point. <laughs> um, it also is another good thing. If you're working as a public historian, you're not constrained by uh, teaching. Mm. Um, and administrative needs. And of course, the way universities have increasingly been restructured, um, and they, that's, that's clearly a, an important aspect, that often people only have time in their holiday periods to get on and do more research. Although I suspect you might be underplaying your ability to navigate the governmental bureaucracy through some <laughs> of these giant projects that you've led through, including the Papa and others. Um, you would have killed in a history department. Um, the future, the present and the future of history. Um, your new um, illustrated history has been significantly updated and revised um, with a particular focus on uh, more recent history, the past few decades. Um, it's a considerable addition and um, reworking of the book. Um, although the early part is still covered in detail, were you partly assuming that Aotearoa New Zealand now has a better sense of that kind of particularly 19th century history, that you didn't need to emphasise that so much that you could bring it into more contemporary? Have we started learning our history? Um, I'm not sure we have. Um, many, many people have uh, read quite a lot and have a feeling that they now have a better grasp but, you know, if, if you think in a very simple sense, and maybe if I put it fairly simply, um, if you understand that we're talking now about Māori having signed only the Māori Treaty and what their understanding probably was at that time, we're talking about two, the treaty setting up two 
um, spheres of authority in the country, Māori and the Crown. Um, Hobson, actually, who, who was the British re representative, of course, who uh, produced the treaty, um, he realised that he had two spheres of authority very quickly, within weeks, actually. Um, so um, if you grasp that, it helps you understand the centrality um, of two spheres of influence and, intra and, and authority now. Um, what about now? Well, history is now. One of the things that have, has fascinated me, we, we finished the, this book in, and got it to the printer at the end of September last year. But I've found, uh, as I worked in government, almost every day um, I've always kept a record of new things popping up, uh, new things coming out, uh, new things happening. Um, so the treaty is now, and if you understand it in terms of a shared authority, uh, then I think the big question is, you know, where do we go? Um, so it's easy to feel ple pleased with what um, I've done, but um, there's always more, and it's good to, to talk with those working on the treaty issues, both the tribunal people and also those working in settlements in the, in the justice ministry. Um, so, um, and we'll come back to some of those big <laughs> themes you're addressing there, but, you know, compared to, say, 1987, when ah, the Treaty of Waitangi yes. opened the country's eyes in some respects, yes. particularly Parker and New Zealand's eyes, what would you see some of the differences are between now and then? I think the most important difference is the, the need people want to dip further into things and to quite, on, quite fairly question the interpretations, where we're going, what's important, how, how can we handle things, um, how far do we go? Do, are there you know, goals that we still could be achieved, and if so, what? Um, so you know, I think that's what's a little different. Um, you do get kicked back, um, you know, you, and that's not surprising. Um, it's something that you have to accept and it forces you to go back and think again and to challenge yourself and your interpretations and so on. It's good. Um. So, um, it's a hopeful um, vision there. So in the book, um, from my reading, you seem proud, really, of the work done by recent successive governments uh, in recent decades. Um, and trigger warning, like there's a chapter on National and its work on um, the treaty, for example. Um, what's some of the work that's highlighted in the book um, in recent decades that should be cause for pride for us as opposed to, say, hubris? And what are some of the disappointments or mispossibilities in recent decades? Well, I think, I think the things I'm so pleased about are, is the settlement process. It's not a perfect process. Um, certainly, um, the national government and Chris Finlayson uh, drove it along about 60 settlements in uh, that national government, nine years. Um, um, Chris was speaking um, just last Sunday with, with us at um, 
Featherston book festival, and um, he's absolutely committed to the settlement process continuing and, and admits that he, it wasn't a perfect process. Um, it's highly complex in lots of ways. Um, it's the, the, what we're asking of iwi and hapu in, is quite demanding in, and difficult for them sometimes to justify even with their own people. Um, I, you know, the other things that have been quite marvellous are, for example, the apologies that come through um, the settlements, because each settlement is different, um, and that an apology um, on an historical account that is very carefully checked, uh, checked um, is, has been extremely important. The apology at Parihaka, for example, uh, Finlayson, in fact, made sure as Attorney General that uh, he went to apologise there. It stood outside of the settlements for Taranaki at the time. Um, I think um, the other things that I think are, are so fantastic too is the fact that regardless of what um, government is in, it's the ongoing work being done um, at the Office of Treaty Settlements, um, the monitoring of the um, settlements. Uh, I know Finlayson feared uh, that unless the Crown honoured the settlements, as he said, we'll end up doing it all again. Who wants to do it again? So, you know, these were important um, issues that I think he grasped. Uh, little is, uh, again, is committed um, to also perhaps being a little more flexible. Um, nine, January nine, uh, 2019, um, Te Arafiti, the independent agency associated with justice, was established. And their goal, of course, is to try to uh, bring settlements to a conclusion, um, if they possibly can. But I think it's going to be uh, through the 2020s before that's likely to occur. But, you know, those are the things I'm pleased with. Things I'm disappointed with, probably only when I can see people don't really see the, the, the big picture or grasp the big picture. Um, and again, Finlayson was very strong on that. Um, 2013, he really pushed hard uh, to Cabinet so that other ministers could see that um, treaty settlements would affect their policies and work because it was not just something that, say, the Maori Affairs Department, which now was Tapuni Kokiri, um, had some business to do. Not at all. It was really something that each government department um, had a role that, could, that it could play. And of course, that's in fact indeed what we've got now, that um, the cabinet manual and the work that Tiarafiti is doing with guidelines for the public service and other agencies working on treaty issues is really important. Um, so it's less downsides, irony, than pluses, I think. Um, we, it's an evolutionary process, but I think people have got to be prepared for change. And I mean, in a sense, it's, the changes are almost revolutionary. Um, so this is exciting. It's an exciting time. Um, and it's an exciting time to be still working on um, treaty issues. Um, 
Kia ora. And, and notwithstanding my last um, snarky joke about national, the, the chapter on national is fascinating and you know gives insights that, that really quite recent history, which I think we lived through, but um, you know might be unaware of perhaps some of the aspects of it. Plus, you know the amazing illustrations in there as well. Um, and the captions. And the captions. They're quite detailed captions this time and uh, hopefully have brought it as up-to-date as I possibly could. But there are still issues of unfinished business, is the way I call it, on Māori land. 10%, 11% of the North Island is in Māori land, um, emerging really from the 1860s. We're not talking now about land that might be given back to in part of settlements, um, but that needs to be worked through, as Chris Finlayson was saying the other day, landlocked, maybe deliberately landlocked, he said. You know, um, so what do you do um, with that? There's also perhaps a loosening up with Maori, do we want Maori wards in government? This really, um, the inhibition has been changed by um, some legislation, but it's over to councils to make that decision, which is a much better situation. But there are other things too that, yes, need to be worked through. If we really have a, a, a fair um, situation in terms of sharing authority, um, how far can we do this? I see Wellington Council, I think, yesterday um, agreed to have Māori wards. Um, I don't know where Auckland's at. Um, we'll probably be like our traffic, we're stuck in it um, for a while. And this is the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you've come up from Wellington. Now, we are obsessed with um, traffic and house prices, um, and often blissfully unaware that the rest of the country exists, but there are some exciting things happening in Wellington, some of which you've already touched on. Um, I think, uh, we've described your career, but I think one of the descriptions of you, I think you're a bit of a politician whisperer. Um, helping to shape the, the discourse. And I think you, you do have some excellent insights slash gossip at times. So um, perhaps you could give us some insights uh, into some of the things you think are fruitful happening in Wellington regarding the treaty at the moment. I think the thinking going on that has to happen uh, about well, what the, the big question, what do we do when settlements have been done as far as possible, um, what then? Um, how do we move beyond that? You know, one of Tiara Fetti's goals is to look out to 2040, uh, the 200th anniversary of the treaty, when we might be able to say, look, the job is done, um, and then how are we going to take it further? Um, and I guess this brings up this whole issue um, of uh, Nanaya Mahuta having brought together a group in 2019 uh, to look at um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP. In, in <laughs> um, and the group uh, came out with a report uh, towards the end of that year, and then I think it had to be tidied up, and there was a final one that I've looked at in 2020. And they've been overtaken then by the election, and they need to think through what to do. Now, I know um, the Leader of the Opposition has been very strong on the things that are allegedly coming out of it, 
Um, but in fact, um, Jim Bolzer was on uh, TV last night saying, look, it's not something to fear that we need to think, where do we, where do we go? Um, he, so, you know, keep calm, just think through, find out what are the issues here. Um, and how are we going to take a little further that Maori-Crown relationship? Um, because at the end of the day, um, one of the things that's helped us, I think, oddly enough, a positive part of COVID has been the fact that all of us realise that we have many individual needs and issues, but we can come together as a team to, to think through and to have the strength and good sense to talk through things and talk through issues. Um, and that's very, very important. For in the whole judicial area, there have been changes coming through, gradually people thinking more about the common law as, as, as was adopted, more or less, from, the, from England. Um, probably all of you will know if I said, look, in the Waitakere there's a rahui. You probably know what a rahui means now, a protection there that's necessary because of kauri um, dieback. So, you know, we, we are gradually shifting in different ways. Um, that's, I'm rolling around on a few things now, but um, I'm an optimist and mm. I just think we have a huge opportunity here to come together as a people to take us through in a very positive way um, towards 2040. Um, some of us won't be around in 2040, but, you know, I can see that, there, that we have an evolutionary situation that's going to be for the benefit of the whole country. Um, the whole Maori economy is very healthy. Um, the whole development post-COVID mm. is something that um, is going to be good for all of us. Kia ora, Claudia. I think your visioning visions is worth listening to at any time. Uh, one of the developments um, with Te Fitzy in Wellington, for example, uh, we were talking about a little bit, was the um, education of public servants yes. in terms of the history. How do you, how do you see you know, the power of history to transform things like the public service? How, how, does that, how important is that? How does that work? And it's going to work with great difficulty, actually. <laughs> um, they've got KPIs, probably, key performance indicators. Um, the different ministries probably have those, the heads of ministries. But that steps down to individuals. Um, but, you know, we're in the, if you think about people working in these areas now, from 20-year-olds 20 to 60-year-olds, you, you people out there will know that we, none of us much have done any New Zealand history in schools. And as uh, a public servant said to me, John Grant, over coffee one day, he said, you know, Claudia, he said the problem is that many of them really don't really know New Zealand history. Um, that in fact, um, you know, they, they are rules-oriented sometimes in their decisions, even in the settlement area, you know, they're looking at the rules and not wanting to, 
to bug them. Um, but they need to be values-oriented to some extent too, so that they really can appreciate that the work they're doing is so important in terms of making a difference to people. Mm. And really, you could stretch that across other areas of government too. And it's very easy and, you know, to, to put Māori issues there <laughs> instead of thinking, let's put them square on the table and see how we move it through, because the questions are sometimes different. And that's very uh, instructive then to making informed decisions. Um, so, you know, I think it is going to be difficult for the public service under the new requirements, but it's not impossible. And this brings up really, I think, an important area too, and that is the move for history in schools. Um, now, you know, everyone's going to have a different opinion about this. Uh, it's the early draft is out for discussion. Um, I haven't done any you know, feedback on that. You are all invited to make feedback by 31 of 31st of May, I seem to remember. Um, I've been waiting because I really wanted to think it through. Again, I think it's an inquiry method that they're proposing. Again, that's something I'm not unfamiliar with. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you simply want and hope that the evidence is there in young youngsters working at it. And you need, of course, to train your teachers um, so that they can help children to do history research, because it's asking quite a lot of young people at different levels. It's not impossible, and it could be a, a real plus. And so you have a whole generation coming through who are going to be better equipped um, than the present generation. Kia ora. So as a result of that, have you got any thoughts about a few decades from now, you know, we have this compulsory schools curriculum, young people being better equipped in terms of understanding the country. What might things look like? You know, what, what might you hope for? Well, I would hope in a, in a nutshell that we have a country that we are proud of, that we work together e in far more easily than we might have. That those who don't really encounter Maori um, unless it's on the football field, um, understand things better. Um, and so that we have, in a sense, a fusion of our two cultures uh, and feel good about this. Um, in, in a way, it's really looking to um, developing, I suppose, a greater sense of our unique, unique identity. Um, and we haven't talked about um, the sovereignty. We've it's too late to start on that. Uh, but I think, you know, this is a shared uh, space um, that where each, perhaps Māori and uh, Crown and all of us feel that we are doing, achieving what we, needs to be achieved to make this country a better place. Kilda, that's a beautiful um, vision, particularly, um, you know, I often wonder whether with all your work and all your insight, you might have been a lot more cynical, um, you know, about, about, but you know us too well to be hopeful for us. And yet somehow you seem to have this real sense of hope and vision. Um, and because it's, 
uh, on the table at the moment, he poor poor. You know, this discussion mm. around sovereignty, around rangatiratanga, kawanatanga. Any quick thoughts about um, well, where that might go? Yes, I do, because um, sovereignty is not absolute. Um, and, you know, in 1840, it was still being thought through by the jurists, actually. Um, and, it, I mean, this gets back to the fact that, you know, within reason, all of us have a degree of own, our own personal sovereignty, our personal mana. Um, and so if you think that through, uh, it's not outside the realm of uh, good sense that where settlements have determined that a whole range of iwi and hapu now have um, governance rights, uh, a shared uh, role there, um, that somehow coming together with the Crown, um, it, it will be possible to have spheres of influence and authority. And I think that's where Heipuapua has a plan of action, but it needs to be thought through, talked through, and, and it needs to be accepted by people. Mm. And are you hopeful about Well, I am hopeful, but I think it needs time um, for the present government to think it through and also to um, set up the kinds of situations. Don't forget, we had in, in, in 2010 to 13 um, the review of constitutional, uh, constitutional review. Um, mm. There was a report, and then Matiki Mai was one that came out in 2016 from a very large number of hui. Mm. Um, the government hasn't picked up either of those. Um, and it's interesting that it's sort of come together with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And you can't look at that without looking at the treaty too. So, you know, Heipuapua has come out of that um, stable, as it were. And now I think it's, it's time for the government really to think through. And indeed, I th I'm pretty sure it will. There we go, there's a challenge to the government uh, today. When I'm feeling um, snarky or jealous, uh, particularly about lawyers and their money, uh, I think of the idea that lawyers, um, in terms of this treaty discourse, have been excellent at working on the rules, uh, but I think that historians such as yourself have been changing the nature of the game itself um, over the past few decades. Uh, it's a long-term, work to be an historian. You've got to have immense patience. Uh, the the uh, seeds you sow might not bear fruit for several decades. And I think, you know, perhaps, would you think about that, that what you did in 1987, your, your work on the Kohimarama Conference in 1980 still stands as the go-to, and yet seeing its fruits. How rewarding is that, you know, 40 years later to be seeing this come well, through? Well, yes, it is rewarding, Hirani, that's perfectly true. But um, you can't rest on your laurels. You <laughs> <laughs> I think you can, actually. <laughs> I think you're Thank allowed. You. <laughs> 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 well, uh, uh, well, uh, tēnā koutou e te hunga uh, i takitaki maiana. Uh, kia koe e te rangatira, e te maraikura, e te kahurangi, e Claudia. Uh, thank you for being here, for listening, uh, for laughing at the dry jokes, for listening to the wisdom. Uh, and um, please, you're welcome to come and uh, have the book signed uh, afterwards. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed uh, your time with Dame Claudia this evening. Hall mate, Kia ora. Thank you.
Tanakwe. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.